And now let's open our Bibles to the prophecy of Micah. Micah chapter 5, we will focus on verse 2, mention verse 3, but I would like to begin at verse 1 and read through verse 6. So let me remind you that over these weeks we've been looking at, this is the fourth Old Testament prophecy regarding the coming of Christ. Genesis 49, in which we learned that our Messiah would come through the line of Judah. And then Isaiah 7:14, the virgin birth of Christ. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then last Lord's Day, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, the additional names. Who is this Emmanuel? Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And now, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we learn from this prophecy where the Messiah would be born. Let's pray together before reading. Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of Christ that as we open the Word of God, that our hearts might be melted within us to consider the utter humiliation of the Son of God to redeem us from our sins, and the proper posture, attitude of the heart before the Word of God is to receive it, to believe it, and to apply it, and so help us now to receive, to believe and to apply, may the Holy Spirit enable that we receive, believe, and apply the Word of God to our hearts. Thanks be to God for the unspeakable gift. Who has language appropriate to praise Thee? But we will try. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Micah chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor hath given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we shall raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod as at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Now let me read, before we conclude our reading of God's Word, from the authorized version, verse 2, which I think is better translated. It translates the word galom as eternity, and I think that's appropriate. Micah 5, 2. 
But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God. Micah was an 8th century BC prophet. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, and he prophesied in very dark times. It was a time in which you will remember I had mentioned earlier that Ahaz had offered his own children up to Moloch. Hezekiah had brought reform, but very few people had followed those reforms from the heart. But there was a remnant. God always has a believing people whom he saves by grace. And there was a remnant who believed and who trembled at God's word. And their hope was in this glorious promise of the Messiah who would come. They believed Isaiah the prophet. They believed the contemporary Micah. They believed the word of the Lord. And here is a message of hope. A message of hope that came to them in the midst of terrible days and the reality of judgment. So if we go back to the fourth chapter in the first eight verses or so, we see something of the the triumph of the Messiah's kingdom. But then, as the prophets often do, they return to the time in which the prophecy is delivered. And there is this time of exile and restoration and judgment and Babylon and all of that spoken of in this passage. Then there is the coming of the Messiah, this new ruler. And so the book stresses judgment, and it also stresses ultimate hope. And I think that's where we are so often as we live in this fallen world that is under condemnation and wrath. And we need ourselves as we live in a world that is under the judgment of God to remember that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he came into the world to deliver us from condemnation and wrath, and to remember that there is for us also this ultimate hope, the return of the Messiah as triumphant king. Now in chapter 5, verse 2, 750 years before the Messiah is born, there is the promise that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. It is cited in Matthew as a prophecy of Christ's birth, but as we will see with a difference. So the first thing we see as we come to this section, beginning with verse 2 of Micah chapter 5, is the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So as someone has said, if Isaiah promises the virgin birth, Micah promises the village birth. So we know that he is from a virgin born. We know the very place in which he would be born. Little Bethlehem features prominently in Old Testament history, and it would have meant so much to the heart of every believer who would hear this prophecy to know that the Messiah would come into this this place, this little place so insignificant in the eyes of the world, this place, Bethlehem, Ephrata. It is very little. It It is insignificant as far as the world is concerned. But in this place, there were so many incidents that were clustered in redemptive history. I mean, it's very name, Bethlehem, Ephrata the house of fruitfulness, or the house of bread. And so well named when Jesus will come, who is the bread of life. 
Israel was given manna in the wilderness. He is born in the house of bread, who is food for our souls. Without him, we are barren. Ephrata, fruitfulness, abundance comes from him. He came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. Rachel, you might remember, was associated also with this place as she gave birth to her son of sorrow, Benjamin, and she died here giving birth to Benjamin. But a greater man of sorrows unacquainted with grief will be born there than Benjamin on that day. You'll remember the book of Ruth and how we have the, the difficulties that were faced by Naomi and by Ruth. Called me not Naomi pleasant, but called me Mara, which means bitter. And yet in the midst of her bitter and hard circumstances, there is this promise that is given to Naomi because of this woman, Ruth, and the Christ child that eventually would come from this line, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. And where is David born? David is born in Bethlehem. So why did God bring the Christ child to be born in Bethlehem? Well, because he is David's greater son. He's born in Bethlehem because he is the king. He is the one who continues David's line. He is the one who fulfills all of the wonderful promises that were given to David about the salvation of his people. And that's why the angel says to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you great tidings, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Now, despite its noble history and God's redemptive purpose and plan, again, just to emphasize, as far as the world is concerned, it is an insignificant place. And it makes it plain when it says in verse 2 that it's little. It's little. Not even mentioned among the towns that were enumerated in Joshua 24. Not even mentioned in the list of towns in Nehemiah uh, chapter 11. Big enough to, to be... Um, to be known, but not really a municipal unit. Every time I think about this verse, I think about a little place that's just outside of my hometown of Macon, Georgia, a little place called Bolingbroke. Now, Bolingbroke um, is what we would call a hole in the road. And it used to be when you would go through, I don't think the sign is there anymore, but it said something like this, as I remember, Bolingbroke, 12 families and one old grump. <clears throat> and I don't know, maybe they have 13 families now, maybe the old grump is no longer living, but I think they took the sign down. But the point is, it's just insignificant as far as the world is concerned. So where would most of us expect the Son of God become flesh to have been born? Well, in terms of redemptive history, we probably would have said in Jerusalem. Or today, we might have said in London or in Paris, but God comes in the flesh to the least significant places and peoples in the world's eyes. And Christian, this has a direct application as to how we view life and how we view one another and how we view people. So that to use Francis Schaeffer's title, there are no little people. The scriptures teach us, with this man will I dwell, saith the Lord with him who is of an humble and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word, Isaiah 57, 15. Charles Spurgeon somewhere said, big hearts never get Christ inside them. 
Are you one of Christ's little ones? Have you been humbled by grace? Have you seen yourself to be a sinner in need of this Redeemer that was born in Bethlehem long ago? Bethlehem then leads us to think on the lowliness of the birth of our Savior. If God himself descended into the womb of a woman that he made, he was the creator of Mary, then what right do we have to be proud? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, it is an unseemly sight to see God humbling himself and man exalting himself. God hates even the semblance of pride. But his lowly birth was not first an example to us. No, no, he came in order to redeem us and to save us from our sins. His birth was the beginning of his descent into the hell of his sufferings in our place. His birth says something to us of the terrible cost, but also his birth says something to us of the great love with which he loved us, that he would come and die for us on the cross. And so there he was born in this tiny village, no room for him in the inn, born in a stable. Sometime go to the larger catechism and read question and answer 46 through 50, and dwells on the deep humiliation of our Savior's suffering for us. So he is the one that makes the smallest thing great. Have you ever noticed that when Matthew cites Micah 5.2, and this is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, when it is fulfillment of Micah 5.2, to which by divine inspiration that text is pointing, but it says this, and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Wait a minute. Micah 5, 2 says you're least, you're little, you're insignificant. Matthew says you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why the change? Because by divine inspiration, the change is telling us that the one person who came and was born there has now made that place great. That's what we are being told. That is the presence of Christ. I have a vague memory of having read years ago that one of the Cappadocian fathers, some of our great church fathers, defenders of the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the Cappadocian fathers was was complaining, so to speak, about ministering in this, in a hole in the road, in this very, very small and insignificant place. And I think it was Gregory Nancyanson that wrote him and said, what makes that place significant is that you are preaching Christ there. Do you see the point? That's what made Bethlehem great. The lowliness of Christ's birth is seen as we take Micah 5.3 with Isaiah 7.14, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she is in labor, who is in labor, has given birth, then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, earlier in Micah, he refers to Israel as a woman in travail, but I have no doubt in this verse, verse 3, given the birth of Christ, that it's a reference to Isaiah 7:14. It's a promise that the virgin-born Savior would be born of the virgin in Bethlehem of Judea. 
I think it's an expansion of the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14. And Christ, the Son of God, is eternal. He had no beginning, but his human nature did have a beginning, and he became man, and now in union, in the union of his two natures, God and man, that union will continue forever. So, yes, it's Christ's coming that makes Bethlehem that, shall we say, puts Bethlehem on the map. We all know about Bethlehem there in Judea. So in terms of the prophecies of the Old Testament, Genesis 3.15, that very first promise of the Messiah, and then in Genesis 9, the Messiah will dwell in the tents of Shem, and then when we come to the 12th chapter of Genesis, the Messiah will come through Abraham's line and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob, and then in chapter 49, he will come through Judah, and then in Samuel, it will be through Judah, yes, but it will be David's line, and then all the way we come to Isaiah 7:14, Emmanuel, God with us, will be born of a virgin, and in Micah 5, 2, born in the town of Bethlehem, and that summary of our first point leads us to the second point that we need to see this morning. The prophecy is fulfilled in the providence of God. How is it going to be possible? This is 750 years before the birth of of the Messiah. How is it going to be possible that all the details are going to work out so that Christ is born in Bethlehem of Judea as the prophecy says he would be? Well, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And so here is Caesar Augustus, and he makes a decree, take a census. And that meant that if you were not now living in the town where you were born, you would have to go to that town in order that that census could be properly carried out. That was the law. All who live elsewhere must travel to their places of birth to be registered. Now, at this point, I usually, when I, every, time, every year I think about the birth of Christ, I do laugh in my study when I'm working, by the way, uh, over these texts. And I, there's just a little theological humor here, isn't there? There really is. I mean, it sure is lucky that Caesar made the decree, wasn't it? It was sure lucky that he made it then and not a month earlier or a month later. Sure lucky that Joseph and Mary must travel to Bethlehem because the Messiah must be born there. Sure lucky that they must go at just the right time when she is near the birth. Sure lucky that she didn't give birth on the way. Well, you know I'm kidding. We do not live in a chance universe. This happens because God is sovereign over all things. God's providences in his fallen world are often hard. They're to our lives like mortar and pestle. And, and, and they're so difficult sometimes and hard for us to bear and to go through. But then there's the cross, isn't there? And there has never been a more difficult providence than the cross of God, the cross of Jesus Christ that was planned by the Trinity before the creation of the world. It was predestined from God from all eternity. In view of the cross, who am I to complain? By the way, remind me of that when you hear me complain. You may do that. 
Was there ever a harder providence than the cross? Was there ever a greater blessing than the cross? Should this not be the paradigm of Christian suffering, hard but blessed, eternally blessed? And as I look over this congregation and I see faces and I, I think of people here today, and I, re I remember and recognize your hard providences, many of which I, I, I know and, and, and was privileged to walk through many of these things with, with you. You are who you are now because God lovingly brought a hard providence into your life and formed you into the Christian that you are today. It's a remarkable and wonderful thing. And so Caesar's decree, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He moveth it whithersoever he will. And so is your heart. And so are your circumstances. And this is my encouragement as a minister of the word of God. The same God who provided a savior through providence can save sinners, can bring a lost sinner into this place to hear the word of God and that sinner be saved. And so what doctrinal instruction is here? Augustus Caesar acted as he pleased. This is what he as the emperor wanted to do. And yet behind it was the eternal purpose and plan of God to save you, Christian, from your awful sins. All things are under the sovereignty of God. How many things seem to overwhelm us, but they are not according to chance. In the great and in the little, he rules and he reigns. What a God we serve. Go take a census of the world and God is in it. And I remember this statement that Calvin made in the Institute, so rich, so wonderful. Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things. Patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future, all necessarily follow upon this knowledge. This knowledge of God's sovereignty, this knowledge of the providence of God. But there's something else we need to see. There's a third thing, and there are only three that I'm pointing out with sub points. The third thing, the attributes of the Messiah prophesied by Micah. And there are two of them we need to pay attention to. One is, he is a ruler. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me who is to be ruler in Israel. He's a ruler. And it takes us all the way back to Isaiah 9. The government is on his shoulders. Those to whom Micah prophesied, yes, Jerusalem was going to be raised. The professing church is in apostasy. But salvation is coming upon Israel through Bethlehem. They didn't know altogether what that meant, but by faith they believed the promise and they trusted in Christ. Calvin says somewhere that the birth of Christ in hard times is, an ins is, is, is simply a, a way of, 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 of summarizing what the whole church always faces. 
that his coming to this insignificant place is kind of an image of the condition of the church. God was born in Bethlehem. God, the Son of God, was born in Bethlehem, a town of no significance. So the Lord will rescue his church, says Calvin, whenever events become confused and chaotic and appear destined for ruin. So there he is, a little child born in Bethlehem, but he's the ruler. He is the ruler, we are told in Micah 5, 2. He is the ruler of the stars above. He's the ruler's, ruler of the world. He's the, the ruler of his kingdom, the ruler of the present, the ruler of the future. And there is someone in whose heart, perhaps even today, that he desires to rule as Savior, and he will bring you to know Jesus Christ as your Lord. He will reign. He reigns by subduing us to himself and by conquering all his and our enemies. And he shall come forth, the text says, to me. To whom? To Jehovah. His coming, his reign, the prosperity of Christ's kingdom was Jehovah's plan and purpose. It cannot fail. The Father sent him. So he sent him to rule and to reign, and he has a kingdom, and he's drawing his people into that kingdom, and eventually that kingdom will be consummated in the new heaven and the new earth. But also, the one to be born in Bethlehem is the eternal God. Now, the language that is used here in uh, Micah 5, 2 is very similar to language that is used in Proverbs chapter 8, 22 and 23, uh, comparing the Hebrew texts of the eternal wisdom of God. We read in uh, Proverbs 8, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. And here I think the proper and the good translation of that word yolam, which is usually eternal or everlasting, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. John 8, 58, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Philippians 2, 6, he was in the very nature, in very nature, God. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The relationship between time and eternity is a very vexing question to us, but not to God. But oh, how important it is for us to understand what we can of it from the Word of God. You and I are born in sin under an infinite load of guilt. The gospel says that sinners who trust in Christ are saved from that guilt. It is removed by Christ. How? Christ is a Savior for just such a person as you. Born in original sin, under guilt, the infinity and eternality of his person is why he can suffer in our place, and his sufferings have infinite value to remove that infinite load of debt which we owe to God. And since our Savior is the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity become man. Do you ever fear, I know some of you, I know you do, do you ever fear 
that the love of God will just not last for you? Oh, my friends, he is the eternal God, and Jesus Christ is the God-man who came and showed his love for you on the cross. Yes, his love for you will last. Do you need a representative before the Father whose, whose intercession for you has eternal and infinite value? Yes, he is the God-man who went to the cross, rose from the dead, ascended on high, and there he presents his the value of his once-for-all sacrifice for you. Do you fear that maybe you just won't make it? The Christian life is so hard. The Christian life is so difficult. Yes, I'm a believer, but how can I make it? I sin every day. I struggle. I... He eternally keeps you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. He, the eternal God, is the one who keeps you. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity cannot erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. You have in Christ, the eternal God, become man, who made once for all an eternally valuable sacrifice and who makes eternal promises to his own sheep for whom he died, who represents you before the eternal God with the blood of the everlasting covenant, whose mercy is everlasting, who has set up an everlasting kingdom, whose strength is everlasting, who gives to his people everlasting life, under whom he has placed everlasting arms." He is the one whose goings forth were from of old, from everlasting. So, that's the value of theology, my friends. It's God's truth upon which you build your life. It is the rock under your feet. God is eternal. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So what does this mean for you? God the eternal is the perpetual refuge for his people. He did not begin with time. He will not expire when time ends. His essence endures forever. God has no beginning he has no end. There is no change in the eternal God. He remains the same. As Karnak the Puritan put it, God is a sun glittering always in the same glory. And this is the God who took our human nature. The eternal God took upon himself manhood. Your sins can be removed because... His eternal being will keep you. His eternal nature can answer to our offenses against the God who is eternal. And so, that being the case, what a foolish thing it is to prefer, to long for, to want, to desire the transient over the eternal God. Young people, did you hear what was just said? What a foolish thing to prefer things that will not last, attitudes of the heart that will be punished forever. What a foolish thing 
if you do not trust Christ, the eternal God who became man to redeem and to save, then we are lost forever. What a foolish thing to prefer the transient, the transient to the eternal God. Now, Matthew makes a change here as well. We've already seen that Matthew refers to Bethlehem as a very significant place because he is saying Christ is born there. But also in Matthew 2.6, he adds a passage. He cites 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, that ascribe, ascribes to David the shepherd's role. Why? Because there also, by divine inspiration, he wants you to know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's Jesus. The good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep, he is Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 40, 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather his lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. This is the one who was born. This is the one who died for you, people of God. This is the one who keeps you. This is the one who shepherds your soul for time and for eternity. This seeking heart of God for his people through the shepherd king of his people will bring you all the way to God's appointed end for you, his people, in heaven and in glory. So again, I say, do you see the terrible cost that in order that we be redeemed from our sins, our infinite load of guilt, our debt, God, God must become man and he must give his life on a cross and shed his own blood. Do you see the terrible cost? But do you see the wondrous love because God was not obligated to redeem or save us from our sins. And yet, He came down. Down, 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 infinitely down. Was utterly humiliated because He would love you and redeem you and show God's love in the shedding of His blood on the cross. So how great is what we have read in Micah 5.2. How great? Well, if you will turn to the end of Micah, I will show you how great. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, we read this. Who is a God like you? Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's that great. 
all of his people's sins punished in Christ. It is that great. Is there someone here today who by faith will believe in Christ, repent of your sins, who will say on this Christmas Eve morning, oh, eternal God, come into my poor, wretched heart and save me from my sins. And he will do it because he has promised that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Amen.